Uh, my name is Josh Jacobson, and I have been meeting with Pastor Dean for, gosh, about five years now, um, as he has been mentoring me along, and I really cherish my times with Pastor Dean. I've spent a lot of time sitting in his office having conversation. And uh, so when he, he had invited me to come and speak today, because he was going to be at uh, family camp, and he said, well, Cook's Choice, you get to choose. And so, you know, when you got 66 books to choose from, there's a lot of options, and you kind of get a little overwhelmed. So I shot him an idea, and he said, well, okay, anything but that. <laughs> I'm actually going to be preaching on a very similar thing next week, so, so hold on on, on that. Uh, but as we were talking and um, just enjoying our time together, he said, you know what, a little while ago, you lit up over a, uh, something that God had taught you. And he said, I wonder if you could talk about that. And so I'm really delighted that I am among friends today, because if you don't mind, I want to start with a little bit of a personal story as it sets up our text today. Um, and so as many of you know, I just finished up seminary, and my next plan is to pursue a master's in counseling because I believe God has called me to work with pastors, missionaries, church leaders, and first responders in a counseling setting. But that's not always been the calling I believe God put on my life. In fact, I once believed that God's calling on my life was to become a senior pastor. And that calling has a very vivid memory in my mind. I was 13 years old, and like many of you, I was part of a family that was breaking apart. And my parents were going through a divorce, and I remember being uh, very, very angry. And like any good teenager, I was in my room alone trying to process everything that my, my household was experiencing. There was a lot of um, anger. There was a lot of distrust. There was a lot of confusion and uncertainty. And I was sitting there, and I was, I was in tears, and I was angry, and, I, and I, heard, I heard God in that moment say, you have a choice to make. You can continue to be angry, or you can entrust me with your anger, and you can follow me. And now I had grown up in church and I'd grown up going to a private Christian school. I knew there was really only one answer to that type of an ultimatum. And so I said, okay, I'm thrilled I can trust you with my anger. I'm thrilled that I can follow you. That is my choice. And I understood that means become a senior pastor. Because in my mind, there was no greater way to follow God than to go all the way and to become a senior pastor. And so that's what I did. I set my sights on that goal. So in high school, I participated in the drama team and in the speech team because I knew I'd have to be standing up here and doing this and talking in front of a crowd. And then in college, I majored in pastoral ministry because I knew that's where I was headed. And it was all on track, and it was all going exactly as I expected until I graduated from college. And God put the brakes on all of it. And so for the next 15 years, I worked and I raised a family. And just about every single day, I asked God, what's happening? Why are we not getting to this pastoring thing? I thought all those years ago, that's what you called me to. Am I being disobedient? Did I miss it? Did I misunderstand what is happening? 
And then about six years ago, God started working in my heart and doing some massive shifts. And one of the things that he taught me was that he was protecting me and he was protecting his church from my leadership. So there was something I needed to come face to face with. The thing I needed to come face to face with was the difference between my confessional theology, the thing that I say I believe, and the way that I actually lived out my life, my practical theology. Because I, like many of you, would have said my confessional theology is that the Christian life boils down to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That was my confessional theology. But as my story illustrates, my practical theology, my day-to-day theology, the way I lived every single day indicated that the Christian life boiled down to what I did for God. Because when God said, follow me, my interpretation of that was, great, that means you've got a job for me. I'm going to become a pastor. That's what it means to follow God. So what I want to do today is I want to look at the difference between our confessional theology and our practical theology. Now, I love the way that A.W. Tozer puts this. Compared with our actual thoughts about God, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 11, or if you have a Bible app, or if you prefer to use the screens, it will be behind behind us on the screens as well. I'll be using the NIV translation. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. And as we dive into our text today, we're going to see various ways that we might relate to God. And then at the end, what I want to do is invite us to set those aside and do things the way Jesus intended. So here we go. Matthew 20, excuse me, Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Will you pray with me? Father God, we know that you are inviting us into this time, that you have something good in store for us. God, may we be tuned to your voice. May we hear you clearly. Thank you so much for your word. We are ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we dive in, I actually want to start at the very beginning of chapter 11 and set the context. If you look at 11.3, this is where the story begins because John the Baptist has been arrested. 
And he is in jail, and he has sent some of his disciples to Jesus with a very searing question. He says, are you the one, or should we expect somebody else? Now, John the Baptist is sitting in prison, and he's wondering, did I get it wrong? Did I miss something? Is this really the Messiah? And the whole rest of the chapter is Jesus' various responses to having been asked, are you really the Messiah, or should we expect somebody else? His first response is to John's disciples, and he says, look no further than my miracles. In fact, if you look at my miracles, you'll notice that they line up perfectly with Isaiah's prophecies about what my miracles would look like. If you put two and two together, it shouldn't be too hard to figure out. Look no further than my miracles. And off goes his disciple, John's disciples back to report on what Jesus had to say. And as they start to depart, Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, Now, John really was a prophet. Despite the question and despite his concern, John really was the prophet you all thought he was. He's just falling into a way of relating to God that we're all very familiar with. It's what author uh, Sky Jathani refers to a life under God mentality. Life under God sees things in simple um, cause and effect terms. And so John is sitting there in jail and he is rotting in jail and facing the possibility of death and he looks around and says, hang on, I cleared the way for the Messiah and I kind of thought you were it but you're not acting like the Messiah I thought you were, so what's going on? Are you, did I get it wrong, or do you need to step up and be a little bit more Messiah-like? Uh, and so this is, we're, we're familiar with this, right? This is the mentality that says, hey, I go to church, I'm a good person, I pray, why would God let these bad things happen to me, right? It's this simple cause and effect. I do this, now you do that. Jesus calls out this very mentality in verse 17. He says, you know what? This generation is like the people who say, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's going on? We did our part. How come you're not doing your part? Like I said, Sky Jathani refers to this as a life under God mentality. In fact, I have to say I'm indebted to Sky Jathani for the entire structure or language around this sermon, in his book, With, he chooses a variety of different prepositions to describe various ways of relating to God. Now, you've already seen mine. I have a life for God mentality, and a life for God mentality believes that the most significant life is the one expended accomplishing great things in God's service. That was my default. Now, Jesus is calling out John's disciples and the crowd, and he's saying, look, there's also this life under God mentality that sees God in simple cause and effect terms, and that doesn't work so well either. Sky Jathani goes on to list two additional ways of relating to God. One of them we're going to see here in a minute. People that live a life from God, they want God's blessings and gifts, but are not particularly interested in God himself. And there's a final group, the life over God. We're going to see this in a minute as well. 
These are the people for whom the mystery and the wonder of the world is lost as God is abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. Some of us, if we do some of this deep work, may find ourselves relating to God in one of these four ways. So let's take a look. Verse 25. Well, I, uh, my apologies. The life from God mentality, Jesus goes on to describe, so he's, he's responded to the disciples, he's responded to the crowd, and now Jesus is going to speak about the cities in which he's done a lot of his miracles. And he's going to denounce them one by one by one because he did a bunch of miracles in those cities and yet people didn't believe. This is the life from God mentality. They were very happy to receive the blessings of God, the healings and the miracles that he did in their towns, but they weren't very interested in a life with God. They weren't very interested in God himself. In our day and age, we might see this life from God mentality in a couple of different ways. It might be people that hold really, really tightly to a couple of key verses, like 1 Corinthians 10.13, which kind of gets twisted a little bit and says, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. Or it might be a reliance on Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or it might be somebody who clings really tightly to Romans 8, 28. I can do all things work together for good. Now, a few of those verses are a little bit taken out of context and misshapen to apply to our various desires. But the truths of those verses in themselves is great to cling on to. It's not a problem that we cling fast and tight to those promises just like it wasn't a problem that Jesus did these miracles in this city. The problem comes when we relate to God only through those promises or only through those benefits. The life from God mentality clings very tightly to the things that we get from God, but it doesn't really cling very tightly to God himself. So that brings us to our text. Starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus says he has hidden these things from the wise and the learned. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're supposed to give up scholarship? Does this mean we're not allowed to give a vigorous study of the scriptures? Is Jesus saying no advanced degrees allowed in heaven? Of course not. Jesus is calling out this life over God mentality. These are the people that have so devoted themselves to wisdom and study and knowledge that they believe that they don't even need a teacher anymore. And he says, you know what? If you don't believe you're going to need a teacher, you're not going to get one. Because the Father is pleased to reveal this truth, not to the people who think that they know it all, but to people who come to him like little children. In fact, this reminds me very much of a passage later on in uh, Matthew's gospel. Matthew 18.3 says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Last weekend, my wife and I had the privilege of doing respite care for two little foster girls. And one of them was a preemie who, at that time that we were watching her, was still not even full term. She was so tiny and spent almost all of her time sleeping. Uh, She had to be woken up even to to eat. Um, And she was so small. In fact, she was still at that stage where she doesn't know she has control over her own hands. And she really wanted to suck on those fingers. She really, really wanted to, but she didn't know she could control those hands. And she just kept moving them away, and she would fuss because she really wanted to get to those fingers. She was so tiny and innocent and just didn't know much yet. But little infants, they're not ashamed of the learning process. In fact, they're like little sponges. Very, very soon, she's going to learn that she has control over her hands. And she's going to learn a whole host of things. And before long, she's going to be walking and talking and interacting positively with other people, all because of the learning she does and the mimicking of the adults in her life that she will take on. No shame whatsoever in that learning process. And Jesus says, these are the types of people the people who are not ashamed to mimic, the people who are not ashamed to learn, these are the people that the Father is pleased to reveal himself to, not the people who have studied so much they don't think they need a teacher anymore. Those folks are not going to get a teacher. Jesus continues, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus starts with relationship. Jesus starts with relationship. In fact, this looks a whole lot like the priestly, the high priestly prayer in John 17. And I know Pastor Dean spent a couple of weeks going over the wonderful richness of this text with you just about a month ago or so. And Jesus is drawing upon this very same imagery. Now, in this case, he only references the relationship between the Son and the Father. But we know from other texts that this is a picture of the wonderful love that exists within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this perfect intimacy and relational knowledge that they have of one another. And he says, everything begins here. If we're talking about Jesus revealing himself And revealing the Father, it starts with relationship. And he says, nobody knows the Father except the Son. But did you catch the last part? No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, this perfect relational love that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can get a taste of that through a relationship with Jesus. And that is the Messiah that came for us. That is the one who stands and says, I really am the Messiah. I really am the entrance point to this relational love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that you can have in your life. And if you were waiting for such an invitation, here it is. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I love these words so much. I relate to the word weary a little more than I should. 
The word weary really has to do with being overworked. It's to labor, it's to toil, it's to work yourself to the bone. It's to be exhausted from all of your labors. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. This is people who are carrying a heavy load. Did anybody walk in here today with a heavy load? Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus' invitation is to, is to people like me, people who are overworked and overstressed, stress junkies like me get to come to Jesus and delight endlessly in the soul-restoring rest of Jesus. But I've never experienced this passage as an invitation to rest, and I'll tell you why. It's that really small word that we're going to see in this next verse, yoke. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I stop reading after the first few words, take my yoke upon you. And this is where I feel like I got Jesus. I said, ah, I knew there'd be work involved. That's what a yoke is for. It's for doing work. You told me that there'd be a task to do. All right, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's get some work done. Let's do, let's do, let's do. And I'm wrong. That is not what Jesus is talking about when he mentions a yoke. I'm going to give you three reasons why I don't think the word yoke here has anything to do with work. And if you default to a life for God mentality like I do, you can be wrong right along with me. So let's look at these three reasons why I don't think yoke has anything to do with work. The first is that Jesus is trying to grab his audience's attention through the word yoke. In these types of contexts, the word yoke was typically used to describe the heavy yoke of the rabbinic law that was uh, placed upon the people. Now, not God's law, not the Old Testament law, but all of the laws that the rabbis put around the law and said, you have to do all these things, and that'll keep you from breaking God's actual law. And so the heavy yoke of the rabbinic law was typically what one would expect to hear when people are talking about a yoke. And Jesus is saying, I don't have this heavy yoke of a bunch of do's and don'ts and a bunch of things for you to do. I have a light and easy yoke for you. So I think he's trying to get his audience's attention by using the word yoke. Secondly, I think Jesus is intentionally reworking some of the old um, Jewish wisdom literature. Now, we're familiar with Jewish wisdom literature primarily through the book of Proverbs. And so our Old Testament reading this morning came from the book of Proverbs. And we saw in there how Lady Wisdom, Wisdom personified as a woman, calls out to us and says, Come to me, all you who lack wisdom, and take my yoke, and I will teach you, I will provide you this instruction. Jesus is intentionally taking on that position and putting himself in place of Lady Wisdom and saying, No, 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 come to me. I'm really the source of wisdom you've been searching for. And to illustrate this, I want to point to another piece of 
wisdom literature, Jewish wisdom literature that was popular at Jesus' time. I think Jesus is intentionally taking this very text and reworking it to get his audience's attention. So let me read you from the book of Sirach, which was uh, wisdom literature popular at Jesus' time. Hear this passage. Draw near to me, you who are uneducated, and lodge in the house of instruction. Why do you say you're lacking in these things, and why do you endure such great thirst? I opened my mouth and said, Acquire wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her yoke and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. I think Jesus is taking this well, uh, well-known, well-understood passage of Jewish wisdom literature and putting himself in that place and saying, no, 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 no. We're not putting the yoke of wisdom on you and this burden to learn uh, from, from these passages. Instead, I am the yoke that I want you to take up. I want you to take up a life of discipleship with me. And by the way, it's not a heavy burden. It is a light and easy burden. Now, the third reason I don't think yoke refers to work in this passage is the very purpose of a yoke in the first place. A yoke is a uh, long wooden support that goes over the shoulders of a human or an animal to make bearing heavy loads easier. And remember, Jesus is calling out to the people who are weary from carrying a heavy load. And he says, look, let me give you something to make carrying that load a little easier. Take my yoke upon you. I love the way that uh, Bible scholar R.T. France puts this. He is offering those who are finding their loads too hard to carry, a new yoke, which, far from adding to their oppression, will ease the burden and paradoxically will bring not further toil, but rest. Jesus doesn't offer more work. He offers rest. The gospel is an invitation to endlessly delight in the soul-restoring rest of Jesus. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That word learn is the same Greek root as the word for disciple. We could easily translate this, take my yoke upon you and be discipled by me. Learn from me. It's a word that means to submit yourself to the teaching of a master, to devote your lifetime to learning from the teacher. Take my yoke upon you and be discipled by me. And Jesus says, why? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, I'm like the good teacher in high school that you all wanted to get into their classes. The teacher that expects a lot from you, and you know you're going to learn a ton, but you also know that teacher is going to give way more than they ever expect. I am gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest from your, for your souls. The gospel is an invitation to endlessly delight in the soul-restoring rest of Jesus. Let's look at verse 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I want to look at a couple of these words. The word easy is a kind of a broad term, but when it talks about putting something on, in this case, like a yoke, 
when you're talking about putting something on, this word really means it fits well. It, it's comfortable. It settles well on you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm really intrigued by this word burden because it actually is the exact same Greek root again of what he said at the very beginning. All the people who are burdened, weighed down. And I'll put this on the screen here. The, the word that he used earlier is fortizo. This is the verb form of the word. It means to load down, or if you're receiving the burden, it means I am laden down. I am worn out. I'm carrying a heavy burden. And Jesus said, but my burden, fortion, same word, we see the fort in both of those. My burden is light. If you're tired of carrying a heavy burden, set that one aside. Come try mine on for size. It'll suit you. It'll fit well on you. It'll feel like a, new, like a pair of well-loved jeans. You're going to put these on and you're going to feel like yourself again. It's going to fit you and be comfortable. Come and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, on the one hand, there's nothing new about saying that the, the gospel boils down to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I think we all would say that that is the message of the gospel. But is that the way we live our day-to-day lives? I want to put these prepositions back on the screen here. Do you, like me, default to a life of living for God? Believing that the most significant life is the one expended accomplishing great things in God's service? Or do you default like John's disciples or John himself to seeing God in simple cause and effect terms? I do this, now God needs to fulfill his end of the bargain. Do we live our lives from God? We enjoy all of his blessings and gifts, but we're not particularly interested in God himself. Or do we inadvertently live our lives over God, believing that we have it all figured out, we don't need a teacher anymore, and we have abandoned God in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes? Now, I don't think any of us would stand up and say, oh, yeah, that's absolutely what I believe. This is the difference between our confessional theology and our practical theology. Our confessional theology says our our walk with Jesus, our personal relationship with Jesus is at the center of the Christian life. But how do we live day to day? Do we live day to day as though that were true? When I came face to face with the reality that I was living a life for God and I tried to evaluate what I needed to do from there, I realized I didn't have much of a relationship with God. And I didn't know where to start. Nobody told me what to do next. In fact, I think I just made this completely up on my own. But I decided I would set aside every form of prayer that I felt obligated to pray. And instead, I would just pray my emotions to God every day. I spent the first five minutes of my drive to work every day just telling God, just reviewing the last 24 hours or so, this is how I've been feeling, this is what's been going on. And if that evolved into other forms of prayer, that was fine. But I decided the only way to form a relationship was to talk about real things, things that really mattered, 
And so that's where I needed to start. I needed to start by praying my emotions. Where are you? Where do you find yourself? Where do you need to start in developing an endless delight in the soul-restoring rest of Jesus? I really appreciate uh, Christian psychologist and author David Benner. He puts it this way. Prayer must always start where we are because that's where God is where we actually are, not where we think we should be. It's also important to pray as we can, not as we should. Start from where you are, not where you think you should be. I had grown up in the church. I had gone on to Bible college and gotten a degree in pastoral ministry. I thought I should be in a very different place than I actually was. I needed to develop a life with God. So where are you? This is your permission, your homework assignment for this week is to pray from where you are. Pray in a brand new way. What is that for you? How might that prayer help you delight endlessly in the soul-restoring rest of Jesus? Now, to convince you to take on this homework assignment, I actually want to read to you Eugene Peterson's masterful translation of these final three verses. I think he hits the nail on the head. So would you read this with me? Jesus' invitation, here it is. Are you tired, worn out, burn out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. The gospel truly is an endless delight in the soul-restoring rest of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you that you are so patient with us, constantly calling us into deeper and deeper communion with you. God, we desperately want a life with you. Please meet us where we are and take us deeper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.